This is a Bible. It contains the message of our salvation. How we got this Bible and, and this form is an interesting story with many parts. Take, for instance, William Tyndale, born in 1494 in London. Now, he was a brilliant person. He was fluent in seven languages, including ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew, uh, Latin. He was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. His intellectual gifts and other gifts would have taken him very far, but he had this one compulsion, and that was to put the Bible into the language of England. Uh, they only had it in Latin. And so he asked permission of the Bishop of London for funds and permission to translate the Bible from Latin into English. Well, at this time, the Roman Catholic Church kind of had a monopoly on the interpretation of the Bible. All the services were held in Latin, even though the, the people did not understand that, the layperson, and they did not want the layperson reading the Bible for themselves. So permission denied. Well, Tyndale decided to move to some other parts of Europe that were a little bit less censorious, and he translated the New Testament into English, and then he smuggled these English New Testaments back into England. Well, the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals were all very furious about that. This was the time of the Catholic Inquisitions. You may have read about that in history. And so it took them nine years, but they hunted down William Tyndale, convicted him of heresy, and burned him at the stake. But it was too late. Damage had been done. English people were reading the Bible in English, and when they compared what they read in the Bible to what they were seeing in the church at that time, Let's just say it did not go well for the Roman Catholic Church. Can you say Protestant Reformation? All right, so we owe a debt of gratitude to William Tyndale and other people like him who've helped us get the scriptures, the message of salvation in the form to us that we have it today. That's just one part of the story. Peter continues that. It's in that vein. We're studying in 1 Peter in our sermon series. He talks about how we got the message of salvation. Now, William Tyndale was 600 years ago. Peter goes way back further than that. He tells us four things about our salvation today. Now, let's get those verses before us. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. He says, as to this salvation. If you remember last week, we were talking about the paradoxes of the Christian life. How you can experience suffering, even persecution, but still have joy, still have love, still have faith. It all leads to salvation. All right, so Peter picks up on that. He says, all leads to salvation. He says, speaking of salvation, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things in which the angels long to look. All right, from this passage, four things about our salvation. Number one, our salvation was foretold to us by the Old Testament prophets. The prophets who prophesied. Who were these prophets? Well, at the very least, there were 16 what we call the literary prophets of the Old Testament. The literary prophets, they're called literary because they wrote books, and those books are named after them. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, 
Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You also have other prophets like Moses who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. You have David who wrote the Psalms. You have Elijah and Elisha who did not write books, but other people wrote their messages. John the Baptist falls into that category as well. So these are the prophets that are being talked about, and he says three things about these prophets. Number one, that they were servants. The prophets were servants. They were not serving themselves, but you. So the word here that he uses is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. The prophets were the deacons of the Old Testament. They didn't serve themselves. It was not a self-serving role. They were often very hard life and persecuted. And he says they were serving you, meaning you Christians. Second things he says about these prophets is they were foretellers, predicting, telling the future. They predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they're looking forward and speaking of things happening in the future. That's not all the old prophets talked about, but that is part of it. And that was a very important ministry. The sufferings of Christ would have been his death on the cross. The glories to follow would have been his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his enthronement. We have passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, very descriptive of a crucifixion. And also the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice. That's all in the Old Testament, all being predicted. That's why we Christians today have a, a branch of theology called apologetics. That's the defense of the faith. One of the ways we defend our faith and know it's true is because we can point to these Old Testament prophecies that were predictive and say how they were fulfilled in the life of Christ. Third thing he says about these Old Testament prophets is that they were somewhat frustrated. The prophets were made, they made careful searches and inquiries about what the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. They did not necessarily even understand all the predictions that they were making. They did not understand who this Christ was. It was probably impossible for them to do so because of the era in which they lived, and these things were hundreds of years in the future, and the Holy Spirit did not see the need that they needed to understand. So they didn't. They, they kind of lived with that frustration. And some of that begs the questions, now how could they write accurately about things they didn't even know about or understand themselves or that were in the future? And we know at least part of the answer to that is the authorship, the divine authorship of the Bible. Every book of the Bible has two authors, a human author and the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we call inspiration. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, these prophets wrote about things they knew and did understand from their experience. That did not need to be revealed to them. But the things about the future, of course, because only God knows the future, was revealed. So while not all Scripture is revealed, only parts of it are, all Scripture is inspired. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit ensures what was written by these Bible authors was true, it was accurate, and it was without error. But we don't know the exact mechanism of inspiration. We just know that it happened. I like to think about it this way. Do you remember in grade school when you were learning your ABCs and you get that specially lined paper and you began the process of learning how to write lowercase letters and uppercase letters, and they had to fit within these lines in a certain way. And maybe you remember, like I too, you had a teacher who might walk up and down the rows in the class as everybody's working, and maybe she's looking over the shoulders and making sure the students are doing things 
correctly. And she might even lean over you at some point and place her hand over your hand as you're writing there and do a little guiding, a little directing, a little correcting on your paper. So I don't know if that's how it works, but this is kind of how I envision the Holy Spirit in the process of superintending what the prophets wrote to make sure they're not writing anything that's not true, there are no errors, it's all accurate. That's why we believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of our Bibles, of our scriptures. Infallible means that they're without error, and errant means they are incapable of error. All right, but anyway, four things about our salvation. Foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Number two, explained to us by the New Testament preachers. Our salvation, explained to us by the New Testament preachers. These things which now have been announced to you, meaning you Christians, we Christians, through those who preach the gospel to you. Who was that? Well, in the New Testament era, that's the apostles, like the 12 apostles of Jesus, right? And Paul was added to that as a 13th apostle. And then also because of the need to spread this truth in that New Testament age, there were prophets of the New Testament. They were given the gift, special supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that they could prophesy very similar to the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And these apostles and prophets explained the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus' ministry. It is to them that Paul refers in Ephesians 2.20. God's household, meaning the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So when an apostle like Peter that we're studying, or one of the prophets gave an interpretation of what you read in the Old Testament, it was an, an infallible, accurate interpretation. I'll give you an example. We read in Acts chapter 2, the great day of Pentecost, when there are thousands and even maybe as many as a million Jews are in Jerusalem. And on that Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were these supernatural manifestations. You had the sound of a mighty rushing wind, like the sound of a tornado that was drawing a crowd. The 12 apostles were there, and there were tongues of fire that came and rested over the heads of each one of those 12 apostles. And then the apostles began to speak and preach in languages that was not their native language, languages that they had never studied, but were representative of the people who were in the audience. And when the people saw these manifestations, they said, what is happening right here, right now? And as you recall, Peter stood up, and here's what he said, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. He said, let me explain this to you. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, 700-year-old prophecy, and he goes ahead and he quotes Joel chapter 2, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all people. Now, this is the Apostle Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling you, here is the interpretation of this Old Testament prophecy. This is that. This is what that means. And that is what Peter is talking about when he says, explain to us by the New Testament preachers. Those are the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. <clears throat> now, let me say uh, uh, two implications of this. Number one, this helps us to understand the incredible unity of the Bible. There's a continuity between the Old Testament, what was written there, and what's written in the New Testament. Even though we're talking about 66 books written over a period of 1,600 years, 
40 different authors on three different continents. There's this amazing unity. That's because the Holy Spirit is behind the divine authorship and the writing of both these testaments and both these covenants. Now, here's a second implication, and it is this. We preachers today are not prophets. If I understand what the Bible teaches, and especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that gift of prophecy passed away in that first generation of the church. When the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, there was only one generation of apostles and prophets. Those apostles of Jesus and those upon whom they laid their hands, and then that gift died out. So, for instance, I may be a preacher, but I'm not a prophet in the sense of a New Testament prophet. I'm not inspired of the Holy Spirit in that way. I am capable of making mistakes. Most of you do not need much convincing about that. There's a, there is a number of you who get my sermon manuscripts. I email them to you every week as, a, as an attachment, have requested them. But I promise you this, there's not a single person who gets my sermon manuscripts every week who prints them out and then gets their Bible and sticks them in the back of the Bible and say, oh, now I've got 14 more pages of Scripture. That doesn't happen, and it shouldn't happen. Uh, but before you leave this church and go to some other church in search of a prophet, there's no prophets over there either. Foundation of the church laid by the apostles and prophets of that generation. Okay, so Peter is saying some things about our salvation. First, it was predicted to us by the Old Testament prophets. It's explained to us by the New Testament preachers. Third thing here, it was puzzled over by the heavenly angels. Verse 12, do you realize how fortunate you are? Angels would have given anything to be in on this. Just like the Old Testament prophets, the angels did not understand what God was doing, what he was up to. I like the way Max Lucado uh, writes about this. This is speculative, but he's got good insight. Gabriel must have scratched his head at this one. He wasn't one to question his God-given missions. When God sent, Gabriel went. When word got out that God was to become a man, Gabriel was enthused. He could envision the moment, the Messiah in a blazing chariot descending on a fiery cloud, emerging from an explosion of light. That's what he expected. What he never expected, however, was what he got. A slip of paper with a Nazarene address. It read, quote, God will become a baby. Tell the mother to name the child Jesus and not to be afraid, end quote. Gabriel was never one to question, but this time he had to wonder. God will become a baby? The heavens can't contain him. How could a body? Besides, have you seen what comes out of those babies? Hardly befitting the creator of the universe. Babies must be carried and fed and bounced and burped. To imagine some mother burping God on her shoulder, that was beyond what even an angel could imagine. So Gabriel scratched his head, but he had his orders. Take the message to Mary. Must be a special girl, he assumed as he traveled. But Gabriel was in for another shock. One peak told him Mary was no queen. The mother-to-be of God was not regal. She was a Jewish peasant who'd barely outgrown her acne and had a crush on a guy named Joe. And speaking of Joe, what does this fellow know? Might as well be a weaver in Spain or a cobbler in Greece. He's a carpenter, sawdust in his beard, nail apron around his waist. You're telling me God is going to have dinner every night with him? It was all Gabriel could do to keep from turning back. This is a peculiar idea you have, God. He must have muttered to himself, puzzled over by the heavenly angels. You know, all of this seems designed to arouse and awaken and elevate our awareness of just how special our salvation is and the generation in which we live. 
a couple of my grandkids come over every day during the week for lunch. Got the three-year-old and the two-year-old. I'm not going to mention names to protect the guilty and the innocent. But I have noticed, and maybe you've noticed with this with your children, your grandchildren, for instance, when uh, the two-year-old picks up and starts playing with Spangle here, all of a sudden the three-year-old, who'd been paying no attention to Spangle, greatly desires Spangle. There's something about the fact that the two-year-old cousin now has Spangle that makes the three-year-old cousin want Spangle. And I can't help but thinking, I get this impression as Peter is talking about our salvation and even the medium which it comes to us, the message of salvation in the Word, he's saying, look, this was predicted to you by the Old Testament prophets. They wanted to know what it was all about, but they did not know. It's been explained to you by apostles and prophets. Angels long to understand this. Do, you, do we understand just how special this salvation is? And that brings me to my last point. Our salvation, he says, it calls for a worthy response. In verses 13 through 15, we won't get into the weeds, but he says, therefore, therefore, in light of all this, the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, the New Testament prophets, the angels, therefore, set your hope, do not conform to evil desires, be holy, be obedient. Therefore, live a certain kind of life that's worthy of all of that. In World War II, there were four brothers who fought in the war. They all had the last name Neeland, and uh, the youngest was Fritz Neeland. He landed at Normandy with the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. He survived the Normandy landing he, to fight on, but when word got to, to the Department of Defense that three of these Neeland brothers had been killed in action, they decided they did not want Mother Neeland to risk losing all four of her sons in battle. So they dispatched a mission to find Fritz and bring him back home to serve out the remainder of his enlistment stateside so that he would be safe. And that's what they did and what they accomplished. Now, all that is true, but it is also the basis of a 1998 Steven Spielberg movie. Entitled what? Saving Private Ryan. So that's a fictional movie, but it's loosely based on those events. And in Saving Private Ryan, uh, Private James Ryan is one of four brothers, and he's serving in the war, and his three brothers are killed. And so the Department of Defense sends a mission under Captain Miller, it sends the Army Rangers, to find James Ryan and bring him back, which they find him. When they find him, though, they join with his company for one final battle to, to, to defend a bridge in which many people are killed, including Captain Miller, the captain of these rangers. And if you've seen the movie, as you recall, as Captain Miller is dying, he pulls Private Ryan close and he whispers to him two words, earn this, earn it. In other words, you need to live a life that's worthy of my life, dying right now, these other soldiers who've died for you. And then the clip fast forwards, and we're going to show this clip here, but I'm just going to set it up for you. It fast forwards, and you show Ryan aging, and he's standing at the Normandy Memorial, and he's looking at the cross of Captain Miller, and his wife comes up, and he says to her, please tell me I'm a good man, and I've lived a good life, because he wants validation that his life has indeed been worthy of the sacrifice 
that was made for him. And as the shot pulls away, it focuses on a white cross that has Captain Miller's name on it. I want to take the emotion of that clip and I want to put it where it belongs. Because that's all fiction. There was no Captain Miller. But we are Christians. And our life does focus on a cross. And that cross does have a name on it. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he did come on a mission to bring us salvation. And the Holy Spirit has seen to it that we have the message of that salvation in our hands and in our hearts.